0: You're listening to the
1: Tudor's Dynasty podcast with Rebecca Larson. Chivalry was king at Tudor court, and I hear Henry VIII knew how to throw quite a party. With the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution just around the corner, today I'm joined by PhD candidate Lacey Boner-Hall to discuss Anne's first appearance at court, the Shadow Vert pageant. Lacey, Welcome. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, same. I'm I'm really happy to be here. This is actually, I mean, it's like the highlight of my month. So thank you so much for having me on.
1: Can you tell everybody about your Twitter handle? Because if they don't know about <laughs> it, they need to go check you out.
0: I can. Yeah. So I'm I'm over on Twitter Um with kind of an, an interesting, uh, Twitter handle and background. My Twitter is called history with cats. Um, it is at H S T R Y underscore with underscore cats. And I have a, a really patient cat named Brutus who lets me record short, like two minute videos while holding her talking about different historical topics. And it started off as, um, kind of like a joke type of thing, actually back in March of 2018, since her name is Brutus, it was like a play on the Ides of March thing with uh, Julius Caesar. And it caught on and it has just really snowballed since then. We've been making videos for four years and we have been having a lot of fun doing it. So if you're interested in cats or history and you would like to check it out, um, I would love for you to hop on Twitter
1: But that's not obviously, that's not all you do in the introduction. I mentioned that you're a PhD candidate. Um, Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, so I am a a PhD candidate at my university. I also teach for my university. I'm currently writing my dissertation, which is on medieval history. But my initial interest um, in history is the Tudor period. My dissertation cuts off actually right around like the year 1450, which is kind of a bummer um, because I you know, obviously would like to be talking about the reign of Henry VIII, but with different just time parameters and everything, it, uh, it needed an end date. So the dissertation itself stops at 1450, but I've been taking um, a lot of classes, writing some papers here and there on Tudor history, and am really excited to be talking with you today about my first uh, article that I wrote with History Extra, which is on... Anne Boleyn, which is very exciting for me. I've been um, an Anne Boleyn fan since I was little. She's actually, like for many of us, she's the the person who got me interested in the Tudor time period. So I think technically I probably have Anne Boleyn to thank for my dissertation too. <laughs> <laughs> she it might were- not be in it, but she inspired it.
1: Well, and and we're we're not just talking about Anne Boleyn today, but we're going to talk about the Chateau Vert pageant, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. very very exciting. I'm so ashamed to say that I really know very little about pageants in general, and I also assume that, that I have some listeners out there who are in the same boat as me. Can you? Can we just maybe start with you explaining what the point of a pageant was?
0: Yes, definitely. So. A pageant, like a lot um, of kind of the public displays that happened throughout the Tudor time period, it was all about spectacle and entertainment. So a pageant is, I mean, you, you, you're you probably familiar with tournaments and with jousts. Um, you might be familiar with like the different masks that they've put on uh, at court. We see some of those depicted in like the Showtime um, Tudor's TV series. But essentially, a, a pageant, it was just a huge public spectacle. So it was typically put on for the people who were present at court. It's something that some of the you know, highest level courtiers would be invited to, sometimes, different ambassadors would be invited to these pageants. And they were put on to show off prestige and status, essentially, of the rulers. And this is, it's not something that was just unique to England, but we have pageants, especially coming out of the Burgundian courts which was seen as sort of being like the epitome um, of class and prestige. And we see a lot of kind of like copycat uh, imitations of different pageants at the Tudor court. It's something that, you know, was happening in France. The French court pageants were very popular throughout the 16th century. Henry VIII had a lot of different pageants occurring throughout his reign. Some of the bigger displays often corresponded with important religious celebrations, like different celebrations around Epiphany or Shrove Tide. And then the Chateau Vera pageant that we're actually talking about today, it was really the culmination of the 1522 Shrove Tide celebrations. And it took place on the evening of Shrove Tuesday. Now the Shrove Tide celebrations themselves, they had always been just absolutely massive celebrations of plenty and partying and eating a lot and drinking a lot and just having a really good time because it was, the, the couple of days before the start of the Lenten season, which was known to be, you know, a lot more austere. It was about limitations where things um, really calmed down. So this pageant that we're talking about today actually took place the day before Lent started. So just to kind of set the scene um, of how just absolutely wild those couple of days of celebration would be, um, They the tutors knew that they were in for a season of calmness, so they were trying to get um, all of their partying and good times out while they could.
1: It was correct me if I'm mistaken, Shrove Tuesday mm-hmm. was the day before Ash Wednesday, yes. Okay, yes, it was. Okay, I just have to set my timeline there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, well, yeah, and I think you know for us today, uh, if you're religious. I don't think we have the same type of like mental understanding of what these religious holidays really would have meant for people in the medieval and early modern. So, you know, the Tudor period where so much really revolved around the religious calendar. I mean, it's how people organize their lives. It's how they organize their events they took these different religious celebrations really seriously and it can be kind of hard you know in a modern mindset to try and put ourselves back into the mindset of someone in 1522 and what the Shrove Tide celebrations you know would would have looked like with the Chateau Vere pageant it wasn't it wasn't even just Shrovetide that was being celebrated it was also a very successful visit uh, by the imperial ambassadors of Charles V. So if you're thinking about like the um foreign relations policy that typically happened throughout Henry VIII's reign, it's like he was always trying to team up with either Francis I against Emperor Charles Charles V or he was teaming up with Charles V against King Francis I. And this actually, you know, it's it's kind of funny how that those two relationships that Henry had with those two fellow rulers is really kind of mirrored in like the movement um, of Anne Boleyn, which, you know, I I know we'll get to that uh, in a minute. But it's, it's, you know, just something I was thinking about while I was writing this piece for History Extra is that Henry, he was working with the um, Holy Roman Emperor. So he was working with Maximilian I. Back in 1513, when Anne Boleyn went to the court of Margaret of Austria and Henry's sister, Mary Tudor, who would go on to become Mary Tudor Brandon, was actually betrothed to the future Charles V at the time. And then, you know, Thomas Boleyn um, was serving as an ambassador to Margaret of Austria's court, and he secured a place for his daughter Anne at her court. And then when the betrothal between Mary Tudor and Charles V was called off, Thomas Bolin snatches um, Anne back from Margaret of Austria's court, and instead sends her to France, where Mary Tudor was to marry King Louis Twelfth in 1514, and Anne was there to actually serve Mary Tudor in her role as the new French queen. And then when we get to the Chateau Vera pageant, now in 1522, Anne again was pulled, this time from France, to come back to England because now Henry was working against Francis I of France, and instead he was teaming up um, with the emperor again. And this the Chateau Vert pageant, it was really put on to celebrate the fact that Henry was teaming up with Charles V and that they were instead going to take on now the common enemy of Francis I. So it's interesting that this one pageant it has a lot of religious symbolism tied up in it, but then it's also really a celebration of these um, like really important uh, diplomatic ties. And of course, the ambassadors, the uh, Charles V's ambassadors were the guests of honor at the pageant itself. So it gives us some interesting insight into a lot of different layers um, of what was going on with Henry in his court. Um, back in 1522.
1: I can just imagine how exciting everything was. I mean, oh he was gosh. still young at that time, <laughs> relatively.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Henry was, um, I think he was 30 when in in 1522. I hope my math's right. I'm not the best at mental math. I'm a
1: historian. It sounds about right. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think he was 30, almost 31. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, young, he was sort of in his prime. Um, and so was Catherine of Aragon, uh, his, his queen. So it would have been, it's like one of those top 10 events in history that if I could go be a fly on the wall and witness a historical mm. event, this one is definitely, this pageant is in my top 10 list of mm. events that I would like to have seen. Just, I mean, just for the pageant itself but also because of um, just the really remarkable people who participated and who, you know, watched the pageant.
1: Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. Okay, let's talk more. So (laughs) (laughs) I have so many questions. Let's just start with the name. Uh, I'm clearly I've slaughtered how to say it. So (laughs) (laughs) well,
0: you're okay. It's French. I think you can be excused. It just means Green Castle. And it's, it is really just in, I mean, they weren't super creative with this name. It is in reference to the set, so the mm. set of the pageant was just a massive green castle that actually had i mean it was big enough to have women standing inside of it sort of like on display oh. but also to have musicians hidden within it i can't um, even imagine who were playing like the background music which to me that's like that's one of the um little details. I just absolutely love imagining that there are so many of these court musicians hidden within the walls of this big um, castle and just like the ambiance of that pageant. I mean, it just had to be absolutely incredible to witness.
1: I was wondering if the green had something to do with the Tudor green. You know, I don't
0: know. It might. They, so they had a lot of different um, pageants that I know they had like the Chateau Blanc, which was the um, White Castle. It was you know, a, a couple years after the Chateau Verre pageant. So I don't know if they were just that uncreative with their names. So they just named <laughs> them very visually um, based on you know, what the set actually looked like or if maybe there was a deeper meaning. I know in, in any of the research I've done, um, there hasn't been much discussion of like why did they choose green? Um, but it was, you know, maybe it, maybe it did have a deeper meaning than this, someone like green, um, because they did the whole set was very much green. I mean, there was green tinfoil, there were green battlements, there were these, um, all of these banners that were decorative, it was really like a visual feast and Mm. green was definitely the predominant color of choice. So that's, that's a good idea, Rebecca. I'll have to see if I can find anything more um, to look into that.
1: So I'm curious now that you've mentioned it, who, who was responsible for naming the pageant? Who organized these? What was all involved with sets and costumes?
0: So it's, it's a lot. And I'm glad you asked that question. So this, the pageant itself and really a lot of Henry's biggest celebrations, they were organized by a man named William Cornish, who was the master of the Royal Chapel choristers. So Cornish, he had actually been heavily involved with court pageants since at least the year 1501. So that's um, one of the earliest records that I've been able to find that mention William Cornish is about a pageant that he helped produce um, back in 1501. So he would have been working then under King Henry Seventh, and then would have continued on those duties under Henry Eighth. So while he was working for Henry Eighth, I mean, things, they they really ramped up um, as far as like courtly displays goes under Henry Eighth. I think one thing that we know about Henry is that he was very much always the main character. He liked um, to have a lot of attention on him. He liked to really, I mean, he knew how to celebrate And he had a lot of different pageants and disguises and um, tournaments and jousts throughout his reign. And William Cornish was really a key player in a lot of these different performances. A lot of the performances that William Cornish wrote and that he directed and that he produced actually featured the king himself like the Chateau Ver pageant that we'll we'll be talking about Henry's role in that pageant um, here in a little bit but they also often featured Catherine of Aragon who interestingly doesn't feature in the Chateau Ver pageant Mm. but had participated and even often had speaking roles um, in the pageants throughout like the 1510s and um, early on in 1520 but yeah she's not She uh, actually didn't feature in this one in 1522. But historians do think that Cornish, he likely wrote this pageant. He likely directed it. He even played a really key role um, in the pageant. So he had a speaking part, which he uh, gave to himself, which I think is is really fun. (laughs) He's one of those people who I would have liked to have met um, because he had a lot of creativity uh, in, you know, the different scenes he, he helped put together um, pageants on like a, a wide variety of topics. Most of them fall under that courtly love theme, which is very much something that the tutors were really concerned with the idea of chivalry uh, and unrequited love, which was the theme of the Chateau Vert pageant. But we also have the name of a man uh, named Richard Gibson who was also really heavily involved in producing these pageants. And he kept really detailed accounts on just some of the most minute charges that came out of these pageants because they were not cheap affairs. These, the pageants, the um, masks, all of these disguisings, they, they cost the, the uh, crown a lot of money And Richard Gibson is the one who he just really meticulously recorded what a lot of these pageants cost. And he also is to thank for recording the names of a lot of the participants in the different pageants throughout uh, the early years of Henry's reign. So he, for the Chateau Vert pageant, he records that it cost about two pounds, eight shillings and four pence, which today would seem like nothing. But at the time, it was the equivalent of the pay that was earned by a skilled tradesman for eighty days of labor. So this one, really, just the set of the Chateau Vera pageant, uh, and you know, it had some elaborate costumes too. Um, but mostly, the set of the pageant it cost just astronomical um, amount for an hour um, of celebration really but it was again it was done because Henry wanted to impress his uh couriers and he really wanted to impress the ambassadors so there really was no expense spared on this set like I said it was uh, just an absolutely massive green castle it took uh carpenters painters and laborers about two weeks to put the entire thing together they started working on it on uh, February 20th of 1522, and they finished working on it on March 4th. And we're told that on March 4th, it was transported um, up the River Thames on a barge with five men rowing it from the place where it was constructed um, to Woolsey's townhome where where the pageant actually happened. So it's, I really like to imagine looking, just being like an ordinary person, walking down the street in 1522 London and you look over and just going up the river is a humongous green castle. And you have to think people probably just thought, Oh, Henry's at it again.
1: Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) I I just absolutely
0: love it. I think it's, it's a, there are a lot of, I'm, I'm like a really um, visual type of person. So there are a lot of instances with this pageant that I like to just, imagine what it would have been like to witness because it's something just so out of the ordinary of what um of anything that I've witnessed in my life you know I've been to like school plays and that sort of thing but never anything like this and it's just it's fun to think about just what that must have been like um to see you know whether you're someone who just catches a glimpse of that castle going up the river, or if you're, you know, lucky enough to be someone who's sitting in an audience and gets to watch this pageant actually be put on, it would just be a sight. <laughs> I should, I should also say um that Richard Gibson, I know that you know there are a lot of people out there who like um to learn about uh clothing history, which is is really fascinating, especially for the Tudor era era, because some of those gowns that uh that women would have worn at the time were just amazing so i should say that richard gibson he records uh, the purchase of fabric from a man named william boater for the women's costumes and the women so there were eight women in this pageant which you know we'll talk about those particular women uh here in a couple of minutes but there were eight women who i mean they were absolutely decked out in the latest fashions they had on fine white satin gowns uh, made in the Milanese style. So very, you know, Italian, very ornate. They also uh, wore bonnets that were decorated with jewels. And then they wore what's called a call. So it's C-A-U-L. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, But it essentially was a covering for women's hair. So if you picture like a bun, Uh, like a bun type of hairstyle, a call would have covered over the bun portion. And that was made of Venetian gold. So it also, you know, that cost a good amount uh, which is why Richard Gibson recorded the women's outfits. um, And, and, you know, how much they spent on something like that. But again, to be someone who was selected to be in this pageant and to be entrusted to wear uh, such expensive outfits, you you had to be someone pretty special uh, to be involved in this.
1: Like Anne Boleyn.
0: <laughs> like Anne Boleyn, yeah. <laughs> let's, let's
1: let's talk about it. Everybody's here for Anne Boleyn. Let's talk about Who isn't, Rebecca? I'm <laughs> certainly here for Anne Boleyn. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we go back? Because you had mentioned she was in France in 1514, and then she had yeah. to return to England. Can you tell us a little bit more maybe about Anne's life at the time of the pageant?
0: Yeah, so she she had just returned to England. I mean, she had only been back for most historians think probably right around four months. So she likely left France in late 1521, um, probably right around Christmas time, and would have come back to England. And it was actually, it was her first time that we know of being back in England since she left when she was 12 years old in 1513. So by the time she came back, yeah, she was she was 21. You have to wonder um, how much she even recognized uh, when she came back to England. She had had uh, pretty regular contact with her father we think she also likely would have seen her mother um, and maybe mary um, at the field of cloth of gold in 1520 so she would have you know seen her family but she wouldn't have actually seen her home so she she was 21 years old or um, thereabouts you know that anne's uh birth date is something that's really highly contested with historians, but let's say she was probably about 20 or 21 years old um, when she came back and she would have likely spent a decent amount of time at Henry's court before she was asked to be in the pageant. Things are, are pretty fuzzy as far as um, details of Anne's couple of months in England before this pageant And you know they're fuzzy after this pageant because it, it was still going to be another couple of years before we start to see Anne featuring heavily um, in accounts as someone who caught the king's eye but we do know that her father Thomas Boleyn had served Henry VIII throughout his entire reign. And her mother was a member of the prominent Howard family. So Anne, when she came back to England, she had a lot of strong uh, family connections, but she was still new to court. We don't know exactly the role that she played at court, but we know that obviously she was there for a reason when she was selected um, to be in the pageant. She may have been selected due to her father's popularity with Henry, um, she was also someone who was getting a lot of attention from Cardinal Woolsey, who was really Henry's right-hand man at the time, because Woolsey was planning to use Anne as, um, I don't want to say like a bargaining chip, uh, because that you know sounds a little horrible, um, but he was hoping to use Anne to placate um, a feud that had been going on between Anne's father, Thomas and um the butler family they were fighting over um who got to become the earl of ormond so he was hoping to marry anne into the butler family um, to kind of quash uh that argument that had been going on uh but yeah she she would have had some connections she obviously also was close with her sister who also took part in the chateau bear pageant Her sister actually had married uh, William Carey just two years before the pageant, and William Carey himself was a big favorite of King Henry VIII, and Henry had actually been a guest at their wedding. So the Boleyn family at the time, you know, they were really well-connected, and this is sort of like the, the web of connections that Anne stepped back into at the court, which I think helps to provide a little bit of context into why she was chosen to participate. I mean, only eight women of the court were chosen to participate in this pageant and Anne and her sister Mary were two of the eight. So I think it speaks a lot uh, to the status of the Bolin family and how popular they were at Henry's
1: court. Yeah, I agree. Can can you maybe tell us a little bit more about um, Anne's role and some of the other women who participated alongside her? Because I uh, in my head, I'll, I, you know, I think of Anne Boleyn and um, Henry VIII's sister, Mary. Other mm-hmm. than that, I'm a blank slate. So who else was there and what roles did they play?
0: Yeah, so that's it's a good question. We unfortunately don't have the names of every single woman. We're missing the name for one of the eight. And then two of the eight, we have names for, but we don't have exact identities. But for five of the eight women who participated, we have their names, we have their identities, and we have um, a decent amount of background information. For women living uh, in the 1520s, if you weren't royalty, it's hard to find information. Even sometimes if you were royalty, it's hard to find information. But we're lucky um, that we can piece together you know, a little bit of information about most of these women. So there's obviously Anne Boleyn, who we all know. There is her sister, Mary Boleyn Carey, who, who also participated in the pageant. There is Mary Tudor Brandon, like you said, who was the French queen who Anne had served um, in 1514 when she married Louis twelfth of France, but he uh, quickly died and she returned to England to her brother's court with her new husband, uh, Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, in tow, which um, created quite a scandal. But things had calmed down by 1522, and she uh, was reinstated to her place at the center of a lot of these courtly pageants, which she had participated in uh, from the time she was a young child. So Mary Tudor Brandon. And then the fourth um, is Gertrude Courtney, who was the um, Countess of Devon. And then there's Jane Parker, who would go on to become Jane Parker Boleyn when she married Anne's brother, George. Now, the two women that we have names for, there is a Mistress Brown and a Mistress Danette. We don't know um, exactly the identities of these women. We aren't sure who they are, but at least uh, have the two last names. And then there's just a blank in Gibson's record the last woman the eighth woman uh doesn't have a name it's just it's left blank in the manuscript wow
1: how would you like to be that woman (laughs)
0: i know i know i have thought i have spent a lot of time thinking about why that happened why because richard gibson he and and most of his accounts i mean he's really meticulous in his detail he writes down the names when he writes down the names of people who participate i mean you know you can be pretty sure that what he's writing down is accurate, and I just I do not know why he doesn't include that last woman. Why he goes out of the way to to name all of the other seven, and then the la- the last one is just left blank, um, is kind of mind boggling. Curious, me. I don't know exactly why? Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know why that would happen. Um, come up with a
1: lot of theories, <laughs> right? I can't see that's the stuff that sends you down rabbit holes you don't I need know. to go down.
0: <laughs> oh, it does, and it's all the stuff that cannot be proven. Right. So it's fun to think about, um, but it doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. Or at least, you know, you can't say with any sort of confidence mm. that you um, have solved that mystery, Oh man! which but, actually, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, but we do know that they held roles in this pageant. <laughs>
0: we do, which is that that's what I was about to say, because oh, we so we know that these women held roles, but we don't know exactly which role. They played, so this is um, it's an interesting conversation we had, and by we I mean you know people who like the Ambelen fangirls, the people who study Ambelen. We had assumed because of um, Eric Ives' biography of Ambelen that she played the role of perseverance, and that has kind of been um, just like a. Like a, a given uh, with Anne Boleyn that she was in the Chateau page pageant. It was her first recorded appearance at Henry VIII's court and she played Perseverance. And, you know, look how amazing that is when you look um, at the like personal qualities that she displayed later out or later on uh, in Henry's reign. The interesting thing um, is that we don't actually know that. There is another Tudor scholar uh, on Twitter, James Taff, if you would like to follow him, um, his handle is just at James underscore Taff. And he posed the question um, for the 500 year anniversary of the Chateau Vert pageant of how do we actually know that Anne played the role of perseverance? What record is this in? And a couple of us um, on Twitter took up the challenge and it's actually, it's not. It's not in the primary sources. Um, the primary primary sources for uh, the Chateau Vert pageant are Richard Gibson's um, account, which gives us the names of the women who participated, and Edward Hall's chronicle, which gives us a lot of detail about the pageant itself, and it gives us the roles, so the character names but not the women's names. What it looks like likely happened is that Eric Ives, when he was writing his biography, unless he had access to some source, that the rest of us, um, you know, over the last, what, 30 or 40 years, haven't had access to, it looks like what likely happened is that he combined the list of character names from Edward Hall with the list of women's names from Richard Gibson and matched them up accordingly. So if that's the case, then Anne Boleyn did play Perseverance, which is what Eric Ives says. Mary Boleyn would have played Kindness, which from what we know about Mary Boleyn's uh, life would have been an apt character for her to play. Mary Tudor Brandon would have played Beauty, which again, she was really well known um, throughout, not just throughout England, but really throughout Europe as being one of the great beauties. Gertrude Courtenay would have um, played honor, whoever Mistress Brown is, uh, likely would have played bounty, Mist- Mistress Danette likely would have played pity, and then this unnamed eighth woman, or sorry, Mistress Danette would have played mercy, and then the unknown eighth woman would have likely played pity. Now, thats I think it's not unreasonable um, to think that, that that might have been the case, because People at the time would have known the ranks of these women, and both Edward Hall and Richard Gibson might have listed these women in order of their rank. We just can't know that for sure. So it's it's just, it's just really another one of those mysteries, um, and a mystery that I think took a lot of us really by surprise to realize that it is a mystery, um, thanks to James's post on Twitter, that uh, it was just kind of like inherited knowledge um, for a lot of us. The, the Ives biography, I don't know if you have looked at that at all, but I mean it is like the work um, on Ambo Lynn. He is a fantastic historian who has really, you know, done put put his time in uh, with these sources and has compiled a biography that I think most people would say um, is kind of like the standard Ambo Lynn biography. And I think it's, you know, it's easy to take that as being uncontested fact, when in fact, we don't actually have um, the concrete evidence from 1522, mm. saying that these are the roles played mm. by these particular women. So it's, um it's interesting, it's something that I'm hoping uh, to look more into, you know, throughout my career to see what, what we can actually pin down. Yeah. But, but yeah, as far as far as I know, um, we, we can't say for certain that she did play perseverance, but man, wouldn't it just be, it's, it it is the role that she should have played.
1: (laughs) It seems fitting. Definitely. It definitely does. I'm stuck on this Ives thing because in my head, that was always the Bible on Anne. If you want to know the real story of Anne, go to Eric Ives. Now that you mentioned that he was the, the first here to mention it. Did he source it in his book?
0: He did. And I actually, I had just looked at that um, a couple of days ago when I was making some notes because I knew, you know, I wanted to talk about this with you. So from what I remember, he has only provided the same printed sources that we all looked at when we were having this conversation on Twitter. It's not, so I was hoping to find, you know, like a manuscript source, maybe something, Um, in the British Library or the National Archives that I could maybe, you know, go look at myself. And no, it's all, it's all um, ambassador records. It's the, um, he depends heavily on Edward Hall, which, you know, everyone does, uh, who writes on the Chateau Verre pageant, because Edward Hall is the person who gives us just, I mean, he describes the pageant in a ton of detail. Um, And then he uses Richard Gibson's account. So it's,
1: Interesting. Yeah, it
0: was I had I had the same feeling where I was like, Oh, no, I use Eric Ives for everything. Right. Um, And like I said, I don't, you know, I would not say he's wrong. Who am? Who am I a PhD student to question Eric Ives? Um, He very well could be right. It's just that we don't. We don't know um, exactly because we we cannot be positive that Hall and Gibson both named these women according to rank. We can think it's likely, and I do think right. it's likely, um, but we can't say just with complete certainty that that was the case. We do know the eight roles and the seven women um, who played them, but we you know, can't match up the women with the roles.
1: It's so frustrating being a researcher and you just want that hard evidence to say yes or no. And then you're left with that gray area. And if you decide to take that leap and make an assumption, well, you better have something to back that up.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's what a couple of us were talking on Twitter about Um, how many books would need to be, would need to have like a little asterisk that would say in a footnote, like this is what we think, but we're not 100% sure. Because I mean, it's, it really is, since Ives's biography came out, you just see it being repeated um, over and over because it's, it, you know, who questions Eric mm. Ives? Um, and, you know, maybe we don't necessarily need to, maybe it's not, you know, important to know um, the exact role that these women played and instead to just know that they were selected to take part in this pageant. But I think a lot of people... A lot of people, myself included, um, have tried to draw, you know, some interesting parallels between the women and their personalities and the roles that they were supposedly assigned um, in this pageant because it is, I mean, it's just really, really interesting to think of Anne bursting on the scene at Henry's court playing Perseverance, because it is just such foreshadowing about everything that we know about Anne uh, as Queen and as, you know, Henry's mistress. But we we just can't say it 100%.
1: I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier about the pageant itself being held at Woolsey's Mm -hmm. townhouse. Is that what you
0: said? Yeah, it was his, um, one of his London residences.
1: Mm, Do we know what it was called?
0: Yeah. So at the time, it was called York Place, um, and it was it was really just where Woolsey himself lived. It didn't have um, like a ton of space for lodging, but it was a common place for him to like to host ambassadors, which is what he was doing at the Shrove Tide celebration. So he he's likely the person uh, who really organized this celebration. He was probably you know working um, pretty closely with getting the set and everything set up um, in his home. And then he, of course, you know, was the host. He had put on a a big supper right prior to the pageant. And then Edward Hall tells us that after supper, he led the ambassadors and likely also uh, Queen Catherine of Aragon into his great hall so that they could sit down, um, take their places and watch the pageant unfold. So his York place was It just had to be absolutely gorgeous. It unfortunately uh, no longer remains. But we are given a pretty good description of his great hall at York Place. Edward uh, Hall tells us that it was hung with rich tapestries that had cloth of estate hanging from the ceiling. It was lit by just dozens and dozens of candles and that Woolsey would have led the audience down through the room until they got to the far end of the great hall where they were met with this just massive green wooden castle and that the castle itself uh, it had three towers it had a really big central tower that actually had a lantern burning in it so it would have had fire that would have uh, illuminated the entire castle and then it had two smaller towers on each side like I said a little bit earlier, it was covered in green tinfoil, which just, I mean, if you can think about the candlelight and the tinfoil, it had to just be quite a sight to see. Uh, and then each tower had its own banner hanging off of it. And it really, it, the whole thing was structured around this theme of unrequited love, which is you know, something that we see popping up a lot in the courtly love narratives. But each of these three banners depicted a different scene of unrequited love. So one was three broken hearts. One banner was a woman's hand clenching a man's heart. And then the other one was, it was similar. It was a woman's hand clenching a man's heart, but actually turning it upside down. So it was supposed to indicate um, lovesickness. And then, like I said, you know, there were those musicians uh, who were hidden in there and they were concealed within the castle walls. And then in the three towers of the castle were distributed these eight women, the women uh, who, you know, who we were just talking about, Anne Boleyn uh, and the other women. And they were all playing the roles of the feminine virtues. And so that's where you get perseverance, kindness, beauty, honor, constancy, bounty, mercy and pity, because those were seen as being sort of like the ideals ideal characteristics uh, that would be inhabited by women. Now, the the really interesting thing um, for me is that if, if you're sitting in the audience, you were looking up at this castle, but what you were looking at directly in front of you are these young boys who were the choristers of the Royal Chapel, and they were dressed as Indian women, and they were playing the roles of the feminine vices. So these Young boys were playing the role of danger, disdain, jealousy, unkindness, scorn, malbouche, which is really um, like inappropriate speech and then strangeness. And they so that's who would have been immediately right in front of the audience are these young boys uh, who are dressed up to be like the um, the bad guys, I guess, uh, of the pageant. And they were jealously guarding the women who were standing up in the towers. So it had to have just been, you know, just amazing what all you you were trying to take in uh, as an audience member, because there was this just elaborate set in front of you. And then these 16 people uh, who, you know, were just dressed so outrageously Um, and and, you know, you were just waiting for the show to start.
1: Was there singing and dancing?
0: There was, but not until the end. So Henry, when the pageant was ready to start, Henry and a group of men would have burst into the room. They were led by this character named Ardent Desire, which we think that this was likely played by William Cornish, the man um, who produced and wrote and directed the pageant he would have been dressed in crimson satin that was decorated with burning flames of gold to show you that he (laughs) was uh, ardent desire. (laughs) And he led the men forwards um, up to the castle. Now the men, which was Henry and a couple men of his court, they were dressed in caps of cloth of gold and then they were wearing mantle cloaks of blue satin. And on these mantle cloaks, they had their names written in blue letters on scrolls of yellow damask and they were fixed onto their mantle cloak so each of them had like the women each of them had a different masculine virtue that was the character they, they were playing and it was their name and it was fixed onto their costume so there was amorousness which was likely played by henry himself and then nobleness youth attendance loyalty pleasure, gentleness, and liberty. And we unfortunately don't have the names um, of the other men. I have some ideas uh, of who they might've been, but not gonna venture into that. Um, But it was, you know, it would have been different men who were of Henry's court and who were close to him. Now, all of these men and Anne Boleyn and the other virtues were masked. So they had masks on to try and hide their true identities which is something that was common um, at Henry's court. They had a lot of masks or disguisings, but it was something that was really important with the Chateau Vert pageant. So when Henry and his men were standing in front of the castle, this is when we have Ardent Desire, likely William Cornish, ask the ladies to give the castle over, but they refused. So Ardent Desire rallied the men, he told them to just go ahead and take the castle by force. So Henry, leading the men, started to attack the castle. And this is when the audience would have heard cannons being set off outside the walls of Woolsey's home. So there were men stationed outside just waiting um, for the go-ahead to set off these cannons. And the walls you know, would have been shaking. Wow. Henry and his men were advancing on this castle. It all would have been Very dramatic. So the men, um, they were throwing fruit at the women. That was their weapon uh, that they chose to use. So they were throwing like oranges and dates um, at the women while these choristers uh, who were dressed up as the feminine vices, they were throwing rose water on the men while they were attacking and this, you know, this attack scene, of course, why, why wouldn't you, um, this attack scene went on for a little bit, but then unsurprisingly, Henry and his men ended up winning, which I'm sure was a shock to absolutely no one, uh, who was used to watching Henry's pageants. So he and the men ended up winning. They chased off the feminine vices, and then each man went up into the Chateau Vert and they took one of the feminine virtues by the hand. And they led their virtue down from the castle onto the dance floor where they put on dances um, to what we're told is the absolute delight of the audience. Now, when the dancing was done and the music would have stopped, then all the participants took off their masks and would have um, revealed who they actually were. So it it would have been a sight to see. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that at least Henry would have been highly recognizable. I don't think his mask was probably hiding who he was uh, for most of the audience. But, you know, you would assume that Thomas Bolin certainly would have recognized his daughters. Um, But the, the mask just, you know, it added in like an element of suspense, which is something that was important uh, in Tudor pageantry.
1: That sounds so exciting. So clearly they had practice having Mm -hmm. the cannons go off in time. Do we know if the participants practiced at all or did they just show up on the is there anything in the records that tells us this
0: no and i wish there was that's something i was thinking about um actually just today when i was thinking about talking with you about this is that because it was so choreographed they would have had to have practiced i mean there we have um a little bit of dialogue mostly between ardent desire and a couple of the choristers and certainly he would have been familiar with the choristers because um, he was you know their director too, so I'm sure you know they could have pa- practiced their dialogue on the side, but the virtues, the feminine virtues and the masculine virtues still would have had to have known you know what to do um they likely wouldn't have had the set there to practice with much ahead of time because we're told that they were still working on the set up until the fourth of March, which is when this was put on. but you would. Imagine that there, there had to have been coordination because they had to coordinate um, the costumes, they had to coordinate the um, the fruits and the rose water, the their weapons that they used. So that is that's something I was thinking about. That I just I wish we knew more detail about the all of the background work that went into this. We're unfortunately only told about the pageant itself. But it's also, you know, it's, it's good that we're even just told about the pageant itself, that Edward Hall thought that it was important enough to talk about it and that Richard Gibson um, took the charges seriously enough that he recorded them in great detail so that we, you know, we even know that something like this happened. But no, we unfortunately don't know uh, much about any of the background work that went into it, aside from like the laborers uh, who worked on the set itself
1: there's so much about Anne Boleyn's history that we just don't know, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, there really is. She's kind of like an enigma um, that she even even when we know her, I feel like we don't really know her. We're always very much looking at her through the lens of um, hindsight. You know, we're thinking about her as being Henry's tragic downfall and queen. We're not not always thinking about her um, in her own right. And so that's something that when, when I was writing about the pageant, I did try and put myself in Anne's shoes. So like if, if I just came, I mean, I'm fresh at court, you know, at this court that my sister is pretty established at my parents, um, you know, have been working with this King and with previous monarchs um for a while but this is you know my this is my first time right it's it's my moment um to kind of like start establishing myself as a woman at this court and just how excited and nervous um she must have been standing up in that tower because there are a lot of eyes on you and the eyes that are on you are important eyes and you, uh, you would definitely be feeling the pressure, but also the excitement of being able to be involved in something like that, which it, it probably wouldn't have been Anne's first time being involved uh, in a big court festivity. Certainly, she was likely involved in similar types um, of festivities in France when she was serving a, a Queen Claude, but it would have been her first time um, at the English court.
1: So you said earlier, uh, we were talking about your history extra article, mm-hmm. and you mentioned how this pageant foreshadowed and tumultuous future. Can you elaborate on that?
0: I can, yeah. So this this is really one of the things I was really interested uh, in writing about with the pageant. The pageant itself, I think, is you know fascinating, and like I said, it's an event that I wish I would have witnessed. But what I find really intriguing about the pageant is how it. I mean, it it really foreshadowed Anne's time as queen. So, first, we can just look at the women who participated with her. So, Mary Tudor Brandon, the sister of Henry VIII, uh, like we were talking about earlier. Of course, Anne was decently familiar um, with Mary Tudor Brandon because she had served her as queen of France. But Anne obviously stayed on in France while Mary returned to England. Mary was known for being really close with Catherine of Aragon. They grew up together. They were very much sisters. And when Henry took an interest in Anne, Mary was, uh, she was devastated and she was very openly against it. She is one of the few people who spoke out against the relationship without really Fearing the consequences, she was Henry's favorite sister. They had always been really close, uh, and I think she felt like that gave her a little bit of freedom to to criticize what her brother was doing. When you know, not many people criticized Henry VIII and lived to tell about right. it, um, at least. But yeah, she, she she was not a fan of Anne. She made it perfectly clear that she was not a fan of Anne. And there's actually one instance in early 1532, so a decade after the Chateau Verre pageant, where Mary Tudor Brandon used what is called opprobrious speech against Anne. And this actually escalated into a brawl between men of the Duke of Suffolk, so that's um, Mary Tudor Brandon's husband, Charles Brandon, and men of the Duke of Norfolk, which is um Anne's uncle, the Duke of Norfolk. and they ended up fighting. It was violent. Um, one man who was actually a relative of Charles Brandon was killed and the uh, the records say that if Charles Brandon had actually been there to witness it, then the court assumed that there would have been just... Tumult. Um, It would have been, you know, really horrible. um, The aftermath of that. But they were they were able to smooth things over, um, at least between Brandon and the men um, at Henry's court. But Mary and Anne never did smooth things over, as far as we can tell. And Mary actually uh, refused to go to Anne's coronation, which. Probably had um, a personal element to it. But then also at the same time, Mary um, was not well, she was in really ill health. And she actually ended up dying less than a month after Anne's coronation. But she, uh, you know, never ended up voicing her support for her brother's new relationship. And then there's Gertrude Courtenay, who was the Countess of Devon, um, who participated alongside Anne. She was another person who was really loyal to Catherine of Aragon throughout the the remainder of Catherine's life. And she, again, was no friend to Anne, and she made that pretty clear. She also refused to attend Anne's coronation in 1533, and this really made Henry just absolutely furious to not have uh, the support of the Countess. And so... He actually ended up making her, which this is really petty, um, but he ended up making her serve as godmother to Henry and Anne's daughter, Elizabeth, to sort of teach her a lesson uh, for not being supportive of Anne. It didn't work. She didn't end up ever liking Anne. She actually <laughs> allegedly, um, which, you know, is, is unsurprising that I don't think, you know,
1: something like that going to change their mind. I love but... it when people force me to do things. <laughs> oh my gosh,
0: I know. I was like, that's it's not going to work, um, but... Henry tried and she didn't tell him, no, she, you know, she took part. I think she ended up giving her like some silver plate or something like that uh, to Elizabeth. So she, she played her role uh, the way that she had to, but she allegedly also became an informant for um, Chapoy. So, or Chapwee, I never know exactly how to say, I've heard it pronounced a couple of different times. I'm going to go with Chapoui if you don't mind. Um, but she allegedly became an informant for him and she passed along information about Anne and Henry to um, Emperor Charles V through his ambassador and who, you know, was also a known enemy to Anne. Some historians think that Gertrude is actually the person who accused Anne of witchcraft in January of 1536, which is an accusation that, you know, it really stuck with her. There are even still people today uh, who think that Anne Boleyn was a practicing witch and that she had, you know, the six fingers on one hand and all that stuff. But she supposedly, Gertrude, told um, the ambassador that Henry wanted to be rid of Anne and that he claimed that she had used charms and sorcery to ensnare him in the first place, which kicked off um, major distrust um, of Anne and helped play a role in her downfall in May of uh, 1536, And then Jane Parker, the story is a little bit more complicated uh, with Jane Parker. She would obviously go on to marry George Boleyn and become Lady Rochford. And she, I feel like she's really just been used um, as a scapegoat. A lot of people think that she is responsible for the downfall of 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 the Boleyn family. There were rumors that she is the person who informed Henry of Anne's alleged adultery. But this, you know, isn't something that's discussed in any reliable historical sources. Some um, people think that she uh, even implicated her own husband, George, and that she is partly to blame for him having the charges of incest and treason lodged against him. I think that's a little bit murkier um, to me, but it's you know it's something that again, like the witchcraft accusations, have stuck with Anne throughout history. The um, Jane Parker Bo- Jane Parker Bolin as being the downfall of the Bolin family is unfortunately something that has stuck with her reputation even uh, to today. And then Mary Boleyn, um, obviously, Anne's sister, who went on to have an affair with the king, maybe was having her affair with the king during the Chateau pageant. We don't have the exact dates um, of that affair, but when we do know that they had an affair because when Henry wanted to marry Anne, he had to apply for a papal dispensation to excuse his sexual relationship with her sister, which... It allowed for like the uh, religious impediment to be removed, but a lot of people still looked on the Henry and Anne relationship with suspicion, not just because of Catherine of Aragon, but also because Henry had had that relationship with with Anne's sister as well. And then just the, I feel like the theme of unrequited love um, or this unattainable love is something that is really, you know, it's it foreshadows the relationship that Henry and Anne would go on to have. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the King's Great Matter, with Henry's struggle to divorce Catherine of Aragon because he wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. And then the, the hardships that they had, even when they did get married, of not being able uh, to produce any male offspring. Obviously, they ended up having Elizabeth I, who Thanks to hindsight, we know ended up being arguably the greatest uh, Tudor monarch, one of the greatest um, monarchs in all of English history, according to some people. But at the time, uh, it made for a really tumultuous relationship between Henry and Anne and eventually uh, helped to, to lead to Anne's grisly downfall. Before we get to that point in history, though, Henry and Anne lived... In a palace called Whitehall Palace, which actually was Woolsey's York Place townhome, which to me is just completely mind-blowing. that The place where Anne first steps onto the historical record at Henry's Court is the palace that she lives in as the first queen to live in that palace. So when Woolsey fell from power, Henry ended up acquiring York Place. And in autumn of 1529, Henry and Anne, they weren't married yet, um, but they were very much together and it was very much known that they were together. They took a barge down the Thames to York Place. They fell in love. the residents and they spent that christmas so christmas of 1529 at greenwich palace designing a whole new palace at york place that they would be moving into henry's master carpenter was likely put in charge of building they came up with the plans um that winter and it was just an absolutely massive palace. They used the uh the old residence, so the residence that Woolsey had lived in where the pageant took place, they actually used that as part of the residential portion of Henry and Anne's new palace. And they spent time at the palace while it was being constructed and actually and this is at least for me um enough to give me goosebumps. Henry and Anne were married at Whitehall Palace, so York Place in secret, in January of 1533, and they also held um, her coronation celebrations at Whitehall Palace in June of 1533. So it is to me, it's just so interesting to think about how far Anne Boleyn had come in really, you know, those ten years from 1522 um, to 1533 to where she was participating in this pageant as a member of Henry VIII's court in 1522. And then in early 1533, so not even 11 years later, she was becoming Henry's wife in the very same palace. Amazing. It really is amazing. She, I mean, it's it's a story of a breathtaking rise and an equally breathtaking fall. And York Place, Whitehall Palace is, I mean, it's at the center of really her adult life, which to me, I mean, it's such a shame that it is uh, no longer in existence. It burnt down, I want to say in the 17th century, mm-hmm. um, but that's where things start to get a little murky for me. Cause once we're past the Tudors, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a medieval person and I'm a Tudor person. And then once we get too far past that um, I start to get a little creeped out, but um, but yeah, it's, it, I, I wish we could go there, you know, I right. wish it was like Hampton court and we could go visit. Um, and there really aren't very many records. There is an, um, an artistic rendering of the, I think it was called the whole being gatehouse, which is supposedly where they were married in secret in January, 1533. And then Henry, um, he also, I think he married Jane Seymour there and then he died there. So it, you know, it was a, it was a really important palace. Um, and it, It was certainly important um for the start of ambulance career when it when it still belonged to Woolsey.
1: we could talk about this for eight hours i told you
0: i could rebecca it's i i honestly could i think i could teach a semester long university i think
1: you could and it's funny because you knew going into this i didn't know very much so i was a little bit worried i wasn't gonna have enough questions but we've filled an hour here so I know I'm
0: sorry about that I um there there are a couple things I can talk about a lot and Anne one of them (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts
1: and I cannot wait because coming soon on this podcast you're going to be contributing some really fun content for the show so can you maybe fill the listeners in a little bit more on what they can expect
0: oh my gosh yes I can't wait so so we are planning um it's like a mini series on rumors at the Tudor court. And we thought how better to kick off this mini series, which will be starting in May, than with an episode on rumors surrounding the Boleyn family. So, so if you like listening to me talk about Anne Boleyn, then make sure you come back next month because I will be talking um, about <laughs> Anne Boleyn more. <laughs> I have a lot to say, um, but we're going to be having some special guests on the podcast. We're going to be tackling some of the biggest rumors that swirled around the Tudor court and that uh, heavily impacted a lot of the big players, you know, some of our favorite people in history. We're going to be talking about the, um, the different rumors that surrounded them and their lives and why people might have been promoting certain rumors and what we think the uh, veracity or the truth behind those rumors might have been. So I, I think it's going to be a good time. We're going to have an episode on the Boleyn family to start things off we're going to have some rumors about Elizabeth the which who doesn't like to mm-hmm. think about some rumors with Elizabeth the first. And then a topic that's really near and dear to my heart, uh, which is really right at the start of the Tudor period is uh, the princes in the tower, which I mean, it, that has to be like the biggest historical mystery to me mm-hmm. uh, is what happened to the princes in the tower. So we're going to be chatting a little bit about the different theories, uh, behind their supposed disappearance. Um, and you know, what exactly might have happened and what, what were the rumors at the time about what might've happened to those two young boys, which will be sad, but interesting.
1: Yes. All good stuff that everybody should be looking forward to.
0: Yes. I am so excited. Thank you. Uh, thanks for giving me the platform to share that idea that, um, it's been it's something I've I've always wanted to talk about and I just didn't, you know, I didn't know that that there would be a space for that. So thank you for creating that space for me. I'm really really
1: excited. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
0: Yeah, thank you Rebecca. I appreciate it. I hope you have a good night.
1: And that concludes this episode of the podcast. A special thank you to all of my Patreon patrons and a warm welcome and thank you to my newest patrons, Cami R, Cassandra, Scotty P, Rosie D, and Dina E, or Deanna E, sorry. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dynasty, and click Become a Patron for options. As a patron, you'll receive exclusive video content, episodes, and more, in addition to early access to episodes as well. Coming up on the next Ask the Expert... Steph chats with our guests about the Brothers of York.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudors Dynasty Podcast. You can follow and support the Tudors Dynasty Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudors Dynasty.